welcome back to the Canadian Money Roadmap Podcast. I'm your host, Evan Newfeld. Today, we are answering some of your questions. So I've got some of these from my email very recently and some a couple months ago and some from clients of mine as well. But we're going to be looking at topics like TFSAs, capital gains, diversification, and uh, where's my Twitter account? First of all, I want to give a big hello to anyone that's a new listener. I've had thousands of new listeners this year, which is crazy to say out loud. So if you're new to the podcast, welcome here. Doing an episode like this is something I try to do a couple of times a year where I kind of go through a bunch of the emails that I've received and I pull through some of the questions that I get from you as listeners and I answer them for everybody on the podcast. If you want to send me an email, my contact info is always in the show notes of every podcast, but you can... You can reach me at hello at evannewfeld.com. Again, that link is in the show notes of every episode. And yeah, glad to answer some of your questions. First one here comes from Dave. And Dave's asking about diversification regarding an episode that we talked about before. And he was wondering what I meant by the idea of selling your winners and buying more of the losers. He says, that makes no sense to me for long-term investing, because if they're winners, why not hold on to them for the long-term and offload the losers? And I say, Fair enough. Good question. I gave Dave a a better answer in an email here, but I'll just touch on this briefly. The main idea with diversification and having some winners and losers in your portfolio is that the challenge is that we never know what the winners of tomorrow will be. And so when you build a portfolio that hopefully is well diversified, the mix between your different components should largely stay the same assuming there's a reason for having it in the portfolio in the first place, beyond just having a hunch that it might do well based on what you think. So generally when I talk about diversification, I'm talking about pretty boring old, broadly diversified portfolios as opposed to buying individual stocks. Because yeah, there's definitely some winners and definitely some losers when you're looking at building a portfolio of individual stocks. So in this regard, my answer, I guess, is maybe a little bit different depending on how you've built your portfolio in the first place. But let's just say hypothetically, you're using broad market indexes for different countries. So say you've got some Canada, you've got an ETF that tracks the US market, something international, something maybe emerging markets, and maybe a bond one. So if you have a portfolio that's split in that way, inevitably, some years some will do better than others. For example, the last 10 years, the US has been the best place to invest, broadly speaking. Whereas the previous 10, so from 2000 to 2009, if you had only invested in the US market, you actually would have lost money over that decade. And so I've got, um, I call it a quilt chart here that I, I sent to Dave, but I'll try to describe it for you. So what I'm looking at here is a chart that shows the performance of about 25 different countries. And at the top is the winner, at the bottom is the loser, and everything in between. And it looks like a patchwork quilt because all of the different countries show up in different orders all the time. There is no discernible reason for it. It is essentially random as to which country will outperform in a given year. And so in some cases, the disparity between the winners and losers can be pretty significant, but it can also be from the same country. So If I go back to 2016, Canada was the best performing country that year out of the ones that are listed. And then the following year, Canada was the second worst. And then in that 2017 year, Austria was the best performing. And the following year, Austria was the worst. In 2018, Finland was the best. And I'll let you guess, 
Guess which country was the worst the next year? It was Finland. So there's a lot of leapfrogging that happens. And so in this case, maybe my advice before buying the the losers and selling the winners is a little simplistic, but it comes more so down to rebalancing to a target allocation every year or every quarter or whatever you've decided to do. So you maintain that same exposure that you want, regardless of what did well recently. Okay, so this country patchwork quilt is also really applicable for different sectors of the market. If you're doing that, individual stocks, the the returns can be completely random for sure. So again, the reason that you want to have diversification and a rebalancing strategy, and again, rebalancing means that if you have something that has outperformed for a long time, now it inevitably makes up a larger percentage of your total portfolio You want to sell some of that and buy something else so that you can get back to your target allocation so you're not necessarily exposed to tomorrow's losers by accident. You're in a diversified portfolio. You're always going to have some winners and some losers. And so if you just keep holding on to the things that were winners recently, you really overexpose yourself to one singular risk. So that is my rationale there for potentially selling some of your winners, buying some of your losers. Again, that totally depends on how you're building your portfolio in the first place. But I recommend aiming for globally diversified portfolios that has a relatively static allocation and rebalancing back to that allocation every year or every quarter. Next question comes from Ryan and Ryan says, where's the Twitter account? I'd love to see more content. <laughs> he he sent me another some other questions too, but I wanted to address this one specifically. So for now, no, I don't have a Twitter account. I, I have a personal one, but it's mostly for just lurking and retweeting NBA or baseball <laughs> related content. So you're not going to get a whole lot of interesting stuff from me there. But for me, I found that Twitter, I, I would probably just become too consumed with being a well, actually, guy, you know, like the person that's correcting mistakes or, you know, that kind of thing. Like, ah, that's not really adding a lot of value, in my opinion. And uh, truth be told, I just wouldn't want people spreading inaccurate things in my replies if I'm posting stuff on there. It's kind of why I like this podcasting medium because it's, it's just me. I can say what I feel, I can say what has merit, and uh, I don't have to spend a lot of time debunking things that are public like you would have to do on Twitter. Lots of people are really good at running Twitter accounts here in Canada. Previous guests, Mark McGrath and Aaron Hector have really good Twitter presence, so you can look out for them. But for me, I think as it is now, it'd probably be too much of a time sink just for how my personality is and how I use social media. So I will say though, that I am looking to add more content in a written medium, but I'm going to do that through a regular newsletter. The newsletter is called Fully Invested and it's going to start later this year. I don't have a firm start date for it yet. I'm just in the process of kind of ironing out a few of the details and providers and all that kind of stuff. And in my personal life, I'm actually moving and I've got a lot on my plate right now. So what you can do is join the list so that you'll get all of it when it's ready to go. You can find that link in the bottom of the show notes. Just look for the fully invested newsletter sign up. And also on that note, big thanks to everybody that's already signed up for it. I'm actually shocked at how many people have signed up for the newsletter. I'm really excited to be able to share more content with you. The The concept for the newsletter is it's a little bit more specific than the podcast here. That's uh, The podcast is more general personal finance content, whereas the newsletter is going to be more specifically about evidence-based investing for Canadians. If that sounds interesting to you, I'd love to have you on the newsletter list. 
All right, next question comes from Mike. And Mike, he asked a few questions, but this one I wanted to address. He has some questions specifically about his mom's investments in a, in a fund. He describes her age and, and what he was suggesting. I'm not going to give specifics there just to protect Mike's, Mike's details, but I wanted to address this question because I wanted to give a reason why I can't give specific investing advice to you as a podcast listener or an emailer and someone who is not a client. So here's a few reasons why in no particular order, but there's just a lot of information that we need as investment advisors before we can make good recommendations. So whenever I see you know a YouTube account or a Twitter account saying, this is how everybody should be investing and whatever, it's like, I think we have to be really careful about that. Maybe call me old fashioned or or low risk or whatever the case may be. I just don't think it's appropriate to be giving blanket investment advice. And it's, it's also against our regulation. So because I'm regulated in the advice that I give, I cannot be giving specific investment recommendations to people without knowing who they are and what their situation is. So again, here's a few reasons why I can't give specific advice. So in this case, I don't know this as uh, person. I don't, I don't know her, so I don't know why she has this fund in the first place. Could be a great fund, could match her goals, but it maybe was a bad recommendation in the first place. So I don't know if it warrants a change necessarily. Another thing, I don't know what they consider low risk. So Mike describes her investment fund as a low risk fund. That could be a literal low risk fund in terms of how the fund is categorized, or it could be something that someone feels is a low risk fund or how it was described to them. And because I don't know what the fund itself is in its specifics, I cannot actually determine what she currently has besides just that description of low risk mutual fund. Okay. So beyond that, there's some things that we would need to know as well. Like, is this account all of her assets or is this just a small portion? Maybe she has a multi-million dollar portfolio, but this is just her TFSA. I'm not sure. Investment recommendations would change based on what the investment represents for that person's financial life. In that same vein, does she have any income sources? Is she living off of this income or is this just part of her portfolio that's kind of earmarked for the future and perhaps even for estate purposes? So does she have a goal or specific purpose for this money now? Or what about after she's passed away? Is she in good health today? Is she familiar with any of the investment terminology or concepts? Or is she a relatively new investor? Are you power of attorney acting on her behalf? Or are you just a helpful son? All those sorts of things. Would there be tax implications for moving these funds? And so if it's in a non-registered account, there could be capital gains. I'm going to get to capital gains in a second with another question. But if there's capital gains there, if you move to something like a GIC, which is what the original question involved, there might be tax implications of making that change. Also, if it is a non-registered account and a GIC, is she aware of how GIC interest is taxed compared to how investment returns in her fund might be taxed? That could be very, very different. Also, is she aware of how access to the money could be restricted in a GIC? Maybe she has a deferred sales charge on the mutual fund, which I'm not aware of, or there could be a penalty for her to switch. There's so many things that go into an investment recommendation. So if you're hearing people give out blanket investment advice online or on YouTube and Twitter, whatever, 
I would say be very, very cautious of someone that's willing to do that because there's so much information that they don't know that goes into making a sound recommendation for you. So Mike, I hope this came across the right way and I gave you hopefully a better answer through the email, but I just wanted to highlight this as a reason why sometimes I cannot give podcast listeners great answers to their very, very specific investment questions because you're not a client of mine. Okay, next question comes from Gavin, and Gavin had a question about a TFSA. He had been listening to some of my podcasts about TFSAs and how I recommend people use that as a TFRA, like a tax-free retirement account. In his case, he has a what he calls a cash account. Some I would usually call it a non-registered account for purchasing stocks, and he is worried about capital gains tax in the future. And so he asks, is there potentially a way to transition my account from, from his trading account to a TFSA trading account? And uh, yeah, hopefully I'm answering or understanding the question here. But uh, anyways, as far as a TFSA is concerned, I highly recommend that the investments that you hold in your TFSA are the ones in your portfolio that have the highest odds of success. The evidence says that trading individual stocks even in a buy and hold basis, it's incredibly difficult to make money over the long term, let alone outperform a, a diversified portfolio. So I would say, based on the what the evidence says, if you're going to own individual stocks, it would probably be best done in a non-registered account where you can use the capital losses against any future capital gains. This is not an insult to the to the to the person asking the question here by any means. I'm just playing the odds that. By and large, when you own individual stocks, the most likely outcome is not a capital gains problem in the future. And so if you can count yourself among the lucky few that make money doing this, I'm going to say not every one of your holdings will be a winner. So in that case, if you have it in a non-registered account, your losers can help offset the capital gains tax owed because you can actually use those capital losses against capital gains. I'm going to clarify these capital gains questions again in a second. But that's why I don't really like using individual stocks in a TFSA, because if you have any situations where stocks go to zero or you have significant losses there, you cannot get that contribution back. So I spoke to someone recently, and this is not the first time I've heard this, but I spoke to someone recently who lost $80,000 trading stocks in their TFSA, all in companies that literally went to zero and these were companies that were on the TSX Venture Exchange. So that these are up and coming companies with they've got the greatest stories around, coolest technology, whatever, and they're trading for six cents a share, whatever the case is. The story is always the same. It's, you know, bought it for six cents, went up to $2.45, and then the company went bankrupt. I'm not saying every company that's listed on the venture exchange goes bankrupt, but when I hear these stories, that's almost exactly how it happens all the time. Every company looks great. Every idea looks great. Every stock looks cheap. Be extremely careful and I would say avoid it altogether because in this case, you lost $80,000 and you cannot get that room back because the only room you get back from your TFSA is on money that you withdraw from it, not on money you lose in it. Okay. You can only get that contribution room back if you make a withdrawal. And in this case, a loss on the stock is not a withdrawal. So, in this case, he lost 14 years of TFSA room and all of the tax-free compounding benefit that comes along with that evaporates. It's gone. That is way too valuable for someone to just be okay with losing it. I would say 
you should be begging to pay capital gains tax before you even consider the the real risk of losing your TFSA contribution room. So anyways, that's that's kind of my little rant on that one. So I would say if you already have stocks in a non-registered account and they've got a capital gains position, just leave it. You're probably fine. But uh, if you want to start investing in your TFSA as well, just open a different account and you can start fresh there. Because if you already have investments in a, a non-registered account, you can technically transfer them to a TFSA, but you cannot shelter your current gains from future taxes. Okay, so what happens there is if you if you transfer your your stocks or your ETFs or your mutual funds from a non-registered to a TFSA, what CRA says is that those shares have been deemed to have been sold on that day and thus incurring capital gains tax if you're going to gain position or capital loss if you're in a loss position. And so there's no benefit of doing that. You might as well just sell it and move the cash over instead of having the the complexity there necessarily, unless you want to own those specific units in your TFSA. But you can just rebuy them at that point. So it doesn't really matter. Hopefully that answers that question there regarding the TFSA and trading and, and capital gains potential and transferring existing funds to a TFSA. So finally, what are the, all these capital gains? I mentioned capital gains a few times, and I don't know if I've spent enough time talking about it, but there's a lot of confusion about capital gains tax. I, I got this from a client recently who had some questions about it. So I'll try to highlight some of the things that often come up. If you're looking about capital gains tax online, you'll probably run into some U.S. terms and situations because the U.S. has something with the short-term and long-term capital gains tax. Honestly, I have no clue how it works because it's not applicable here and I'm not a U.S. tax specialist by any means. So if you're hearing anything about short-term or long-term capital gains tax, that is not applicable to us as Canadians. Capital gains a capital gain and that's all you need to worry about. So capital gain is when you sell something that is increased in value. However, for the vast majority of us Canadians and many of you listening, your capital gains are not applicable if you're investing in an RSP. Capital gains do not apply in an RSP. Capital gains do not apply in a TFSA. And capital gains do not apply when you sell your primary residence. So for the vast majority of us, capital gains will not really come up very often. But If you have a secondary property or if you are like the previous listener who has stocks or investments in a non-registered account or a cash account or an open account, whatever you call it, then you have to worry about capital gains, okay? Because in those environments, the CRA standard of if you make money, we want a piece of it applies, okay? So capital gain is a situation where it is increased in value and you have to pay some tax on that increase. Let's give a hypothetical example here. So say you buy some stock for 100 bucks, and then over time it increases to 120 Then at that time you want to sell it and buy something else or sell it and spend the money, whatever you want to do. So in this case, you bought it for 100 sold for 120 and so the capital gain in this case is $20. However, in Canada, you only pay tax on half of the gain. So only $10 is included in your taxable income. So if you have employment income, or maybe you're receiving a pension or something like that. All of that it pools together into your taxable income. And in this case, the $10 of the taxable capital gain gets included in that and you pay it at your marginal rate. So if you're in the 33% tax bracket, in that case, you would owe $3.30 on that $20 of capital gain. So let me run through that example again. You bought something for 100 bucks, you sold it at 120 
20 is your capital gain. 10 is taxable income, but the tax you owe is based on your marginal rate. And hypothetically, that would be about three bucks for this, this person. If you're in the 50% bracket, then you'd owe $5 and so on and so on as it relates to your personal situation. Now, the opposite is also true. Whereas if you buy something for a hundred bucks and you sell it for 80, now you have a $20 loss. Now, what you cannot do is use a capital loss to offset your income. Not yet anyways. <laughs> so capital losses can only be used to offset capital gains. However, if you have a loss, you can carry it forward for the rest of your life to the point where eventually, hopefully you have some gains that you can use it against. But if you make it to the end of your life and you still haven't used those capital losses in the year that you pass and the previous year, you can use your capital losses to offset any source of income. Don't worry about this. Your executor is going to be the one dealing with all of this, but having a capital loss is always something that sits on your tax record as an asset that can be used against capital gains now or anytime in the future and against income in the year that you pass away or the previous year. So there's plenty of tax planning that can go into a situation of capital gains. Another way that you can get rid of capital gains is by donating those shares or units of a mutual fund or ETF to a charity of your choice. And in that case, your capital gains actually evaporates too. Um, you get a tax credit for the entirety of the charitable gift. So there's some cool things there. I've done a couple episodes about charitable giving in, in the past. If you have questions about that, I'd love to have that discussion with you too. But that's just a brief overview of how capital gains works. Again, if you're in an RSP, if you're in a TFSA, if you're in a pension plan, I guess I didn't mention that one. And if you own a primary residence, capital gains will not apply. So you don't have to worry about that. Again, if you've heard anything about the US and how they've got short-term and long-term capital gains tax and a bunch of other things that do not apply, really make sure that when you're looking for tax-specific content, that it's Canadian. Because what we do here is very, very different than what we do in the US. Anyways, thanks so much again to uh, to all of you who asked questions. And uh, for those of you that I didn't answer on the podcast here, I hope that my email responses were sufficient for you. I really appreciate all the few who do reach out. And, and I look forward to doing this again in a few months. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Canadian Money Roadmap Podcast. Any rates of return or investments discussed are historical or hypothetical and are intended to be used for educational purposes only. You should always consult with your financial, legal, and tax advisors before making changes to your financial plan. Evan Neufeld is a certified financial planner and registered investment fund advisor. Mutual funds and ETFs are provided by Sterling Mutuals, Inc.